0: I hope that you will take your Bible or a Bible from the pew in front of you and turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 to 28. It's on page 1428 of the pew Bible. Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. Father, as we immerse ourselves now in this glorious word. I ask with all my heart that you would establish your people unshakable in the truth and that you would gather to yourself those in this room who are not yet born of God. I pray that some who came here unbelieving would leave believing. That those who came dead in trespasses and sins would experience the new birth through the word of the living God and leave alive. I pray that those who have no anticipation of nor desire for the arrival of Jesus Christ in the clouds would leave here aflame with longing for Christ to come. And so, Lord, these are great spiritual transformations that we are seeking. And only by your Spirit can they happen through your Word. And I ask that you would anoint me for this ministry And that you would, as it were, brood over this congregation. And that you would heal and save and strengthen and liberate and empower and meet every need. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Let's notice how this sentences put together. It's a comparison between our lives and Christ's life. In as much as or just as it is appointed unto men, so Christ also. So you see the parallel is between something that happens to us, we die and we come into judgment. And something that happens to Christ, he dies and then comes to save from judgment. So there's a paralleling of my experience and Christ's experience. Every decisive experience that you have, like death and judgment, Christ has a paralleling experience. Only the the catch is that his doesn't just parallel ours, run alongside it. It is so much greater in its corresponding nature that it has a tremendous impact on the corresponding reality in ours. So we die and He dies, but His death isn't like our death. It has a tremendous impact on the way we die and what death means for us. And when we get to judgment and face judgment, and Christ arrives at that judgment moment, our experience of it and His experience of it, are not going to be parallel exactly because his experience of it is going to transform my experience of it and be a saving asbestos around me when the fire breaks out in the judgment of God at the end of this age. So it's not enough to say our lives run their common course. I run the race, he runs the race, I cross the river, he crosses the river, I face the dragon, he faces the dragon. It's not exactly right. When he crossed the river, he died in the river and built a bridge over the river. And when he faces the dragon, he absorbs the whole fiery mouth of the dragon so that I, in him, don't feel any of that destructive damnation. So there is a paralleling in these verses, but the gist of the paralleling is all designed to make me feel dependent and hopeful and to make him look tremendous, powerful, and majestic in his dying and his coming to judgment. So, yes, a kind of paralleling, but only to accent how much greater Christ is than this weak person. So let's go to these verses now and see how the writer does these things. Verse 27, Hebrews 9 inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die. Now this is a rich, rich sentence. God is so merciful to talk to us this way. There are two things I want you to see in those words. The first is, it is an appointed to die. There's an appointment that we have with death. Everybody, a lot of young people in this room. You're all going to die. Did you know that? And you're going to die, old or young, by appointment. So my question is, who made the appointment? I didn't sign up. I don't sign up for appointments like that. It's bad enough that I got a call... The dentist in a few days. I don't want to go to the dentist. I don't like to go to the dentist. But that's an appointment I will muster the willpower to make. I don't like taking my car to the shop. It always comes out broken. I I don't like to make those appointments. But I make them. But here's one I'm not signing up for. I didn't make this appointment with death. So who made it? God made it. Let's unpack that for a minute. You need to feel that. You need to know that. You need to be glad about that. Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, they fell from their precious position into sin and death. And here's the way Paul puts it in Romans 5.12. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin so death spread to all men because all sinned. God warned it would happen. They did it anyway, and it happened. And all the ancestors of Adam and Eve died. We all are going to die physically. We all died spiritually in them. Death is not merely the result of natural processes, The world doesn't just run on its own laws as though no God in His sovereign providence is running, guiding, leading this massive affair of history, living and dying. There's a God over this. These are appointments from God when we die. Here's a key verse for you. It's a precious verse on living and dying and living by God's decree. Psalm 139.16 And in thy book, O God, they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. There's a number ordained for you. They're written in a book. And you will not live one minute longer than are written in the book. Or one minute shorter. There are days ordained for me before there was one of them. And thou knowest them altogether, O God. But here's, let me put, let me make it even stronger. Not only did God make all the appointments and write them in His appointment book with a beginning, a birthday, and an end, a death day, He makes sure you keep the appointment. Remember Job's losses? He has ten children and they're all partying in a big building and a strong east wind comes and the building falls and crushes them all to death. Like an Oklahoma City government center or Exploding airbag in a parking lot, or a stillbirth, or a motorcycle accident, and Job says, "The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." Job one twenty one. So God, God wrote the appointment in His book, and then He arrived. And saw to it that they kept the appointment. The Lord took. The Lord took. I find great comfort in knowing that the world is not absurd and meaningless and running wildly free of any divine and wise and loving control. I find great comfort in that, that an all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God is ruling over my birthday and my death day. God makes our appointment. Do you remember the last chapter of the Gospel of John? It's an amazing set of conversations there. Peter is... Loved by the Lord. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And then he says, the days are going to come, Peter, when you're going to stretch forth your hands and they're going to lead you where you do not want to go. And thus he told him by what death he was to glorify God. Peter was crucified, probably upside down. Jesus didn't just make the appointment. He designed it ahead of time. He told him how it was going to be. But then three verses later, Peter said, What about John? What about John? And Jesus with awesome sovereignty says, If it is my will, that he remain until I come. What is that to you? Follow me. If it is my will that he remain. So who decides if he remains? Jesus! Nobody's taken this man's life. Just like Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord didn't look like it on Good Friday, but it was true. And so he says of John, if I will that he remain, he remain. And if I don't will it, he won't. I decide. I write the appointment book and I arrive to see that people keep their appointments. Cancer isn't going to do it. Heart disease is not going to do it. A bullet from a roving gangster is not going to do it. A car accident is not going to do it. Christ will do it. And he will do it if you're one month old, five days old, ten years old, 32, 64, 85, 101. The days for us are written in a book. Christians ought to be the freest of all people from the fear of death. When I am afraid, I put my trust in Thee. In God, whose word I praise. and God, I trust. Without a fear, what can man do to me? They can only kill me. And that's all they can do. And I will not fear those who, after they kill the body, have nothing more That they can do. I will fear the one who has the power to cast into hell. That's whom I will fear. So live where God calls you to live. And do what God calls you to do. And seek the kingdom first. And let all the other things be added to you. One day. Two days. Three days. Ten thousand days. It's His business. Not ours. God makes the appointments. And God arrives to see that we keep them. But here's the second word I want you to see in this phrase. It is appointed to men to die once. Once. That's the word I want you to think about. Just a minute. It is appointed to every one of you to die once. Not twice. Or three times or four times. So you may get out of your mind once and for all. Reincarnation. It's over. Strike that possibility from your meditations with the spiritual people at work. It ain't gonna happen. You're not coming back to die again. Not higher, not lower. It's over. The point of this verse is the finality. The once for all, linear finality. Life in the Bible starts and it gets moving and there are no circles. There's no curving back and starting over again. You're on one trajectory here and you are born and you die once and then comes judgment and then eternity. That's the Christian view of life. No circles here. No great endless cycles of reincarnation. Take that verse with you tomorrow morning when you go to work. Talk to your reincarnation friend and just let them know that's not Christianity. The least you can do is let them know that's not an option inside the Bible. Now, this truth should have a tremendous effect on us. The truth that we're going to die and Christ will see to it that it's on time. And the truth that it's only going to happen once. These two truths should sober us. My prayer as I've gotten ready for this message is that we would be awakened. That we would take seriously what is really serious. That we wouldn't be numb, numb in our hearts and lifeless. There's an absurdity here. Uh, Samuel Johnson said um, something like, Depend on it when a man knows he's going to be hanged in a fortnight. It wonderfully concentrates his attention. Here's the way the Bible put that Psalm ninety, verse twelve. Teach us, O God, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You know you know what foolishness is, the opposite of wisdom? You know what that is? It's thinking a lot about what matters little. And thinking a little about what matters a lot. Test yourself on this one. What matters a lot? Death matters a lot. Judgment matters a lot. Salvation matters a lot. And the all-star game matters a little. Real, 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 real little. And so does what you wear. Wear and where you live, and what kind of car you drive, and what kind of job you have. The external things of life matter little. Physical exercise, Paul says, matters little. But there are a few things in the world that matter a lot. And my plea to you as I deliver this word this morning is, become a wise person. Teach us to number our days, oh God, that we might get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom is a life of proportion that corresponds to reality. So that there's large concern with what is important and little concern with what is unimportant. So seek the kingdom first. And let everything else be added unto you in God's way and God's time. Become a wise people, a countercultural people, a kingdom oriented people, a god besotted people, a risk-taking people, a kind of people who when you come to die, whatever that time is this week or a hundred years from now, will be glad that you've walked with God differently from those who are so concerned about such inconsequential things. And there aren't too many teenagers in the room, but young people need to wake up to these things because they're so wrapped up in style and how they come across and whether they're saying the cool word or wearing the cool hair or slashing the cool britches. I had the most wonderful experience studying John Calvin. And I didn't even tell the pastors this. This is a little bonus that you get. Did you know that for 12 years in Geneva, there was a law against slashed britches? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So even, you know, I'm talking about when you just appropriately wear jeans that are that are all torn in the right place, and you have to work real hard to get them torn, because it's cool. It's cool for about six months. It's cool. And that's what young people are all worked up with: Am I jeans torn right, or am I going to get to the party? And ah, I tore them in the wrong place. And there are many such things in this life among adults who play their games and never think about dying, never think about judgment. I mean, when we get to the judgment day, and our eyes are open to see what was real and what really mattered in this world we are going to shed a few tears of remorse that we wasted it. So don't be numb. Don't be foolish. Let's go to the next phrase. This is the one in verse 27 that lends such weight to the first phrases. It is appointed to men to die once, and after this comes judgment. May the Lord open your eyes to this. We are not material machines with chemicals and stuff that decomposes and that's that when we die. We survive death. Everybody in this room is going to die. And according to this verse, everybody in this room is going to be conscious later. That's awesome. And we're going to face judgment. Now, this stands right over against much common teaching in the scientific community that rejects purpose and origin in life, that has sense. Take the historian of science, William Provine, at the University of Cornell or Cornell University. Here's what he wrote. Just read this this week. Evolution finds no intelligent design operating in nature and no such thing as immortality or life after death. We are produced by a process that gives not one damn about us. Close quote. Now I quoted that here because the word damn is real important. Contextually buried important and not at all what he thinks. It's a scary thing. You should pray for people like this, just like Jesus did on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're saying. He's not going to say that like that in the face of the judge. He's not. We should pray for people like that. Don't get all huffity and angry and say, I can't have people like that to university. Just pray. 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 They're so desperately in trouble. This is not something to get all huffy and mean about. It's, it's something to cry over. They're going to meet the judge. And then they'll try to open their mouth and say, he didn't give up. And they can't get that word out because it's right there. And it's too late. That's what this text is about. After death comes judgment. Now, the writer of this book does not leave us to guess about what he means. If we, if we only had this one verse, we might say, what's this? Is this the judgment according to works whereby the believers get rewards and not?" Is, is that what he's talking about? That's not what this writer's talking about. And you know that because it's paralleling the second coming in the next verse. Just go down into chapter 10 to verse 27 if you want to see a description of what he's talking about. Chapter 10, verse 27 He's talking about, quote, a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire that will consume the adversaries. And then look, three verses later, in verse 30, we know Him who said, vengeance is mine. I mean, just let you, let yourself feel the word vengeance in the mouth of an omnipotent God holy, just, and righteous vengeance against Cornell professors and many other people who have mocked His providence. We know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. So we all have an appointment with death, On the other side of death, we have an appointment with judgment. It's going to be a terrifying, furious fire. And even people who claim to be a part of the people of God are going to be incinerated right out of the body of Christ when they are not truly part of it. As the judgment begins with the household of God, as Peter said, incinerated into everlasting conscious torment. These are sobering realities. This is sobering. Please think about these things. Give attention to these things. If they are true, if you come as a skeptic this morning, you say, oh man, that's just mythological stuff. Well, think about it. Might there not be if you pray and seek... Some confirmations in the world, in history, in your soul, in the Bible. Some confirmations of these things that suddenly awaken you to the fact that this is not something to be toyed with. This is not something to play around with. I must know if this is true, because if it's true, it is the most ultimate awesome issue I could ever face. Now, let's let's move toward the close with this wonderful juxtaposition of the life of Christ against my reality of dying and facing judgment. That is, let's go to verse 28. It's appointed to us to die once and after that comes judgment. Now what about Christ? So Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now let yourself be mightily encouraged by these verses. Because what he's doing here is he's taking your death and your experience of judgment, and he's taking Christ now. And he's putting Christ beside that and saying, All right, if this is awesome, if you've got to keep an appointment with death. And if you've got to keep an appointment with the judge who is a flaming fire of vengeance against all unbelief and sin then you better have a Christ. How are you going to have one? What has he done? What did he do the first time? What will he do the second time? Here's what he did the first time. He was offering, he became an offering once to bear the sins of many. Now, we'll talk about who the many are in just a minute as we close. But now, notice this one main central thing, and it's the most precious thing I have to say this morning. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died, He bore sin. He took sin that was not His own, and He bore it. He carried it. This is a quote from Isaiah 53, 12. He bore the sin of many. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Compare it to verse 26, last week's ter- text. Verse 26, you remember, at the end of the age, He was manifested that He might put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Now put verse 28, 28 underneath that as the how-to. How did He... Put away sin. The answer is, he bore it. It crushed him. And he's talking about sin not his own, but mine. The sin of many. So here you are now, this morning. And I've told you, you got an appointment with death. And some of you, like me, have waked late at night and early in the morning in some of those times when it seemed to be right there. And you were absolutely terrified. Because you knew that right on the other side you were going to face an infinitely holy judge. And you felt so dirty and unworthy. And I ask you, what are you going to do? Not only at that moment of imagination, but when you are on the third or fourth floor of Augustana home. And your mind is still clear. And your kidneys are failing. And your heart is failing. And your fingers are turning black. And they tell you honestly, maybe 24. To meet him. What are you going to do? I mean, that moment in my life is going to be so awesome. I have felt it in my imagination that the last minutes moving up to the river where we cross over is going to be so awesome. If you don't have in place there a massive sin bearer, you are going to be terrified or you are going to be drunk. He bore it. There it is. He bore it. That's the best news in all the world. It's the center of the Gospel. It's the center of Christianity. It's the center of everything. Christ carried it. He carried it. And you know why that's so precious? Because even after we believe, we sin. Satan comes to us in those low, awful moments and he says to us, See, didn't do you any good. You're not ready to meet him. You'll be consumed among the adversaries by this fire. That's what Satan says. That's what he's going to say in the last hour of your life. I've battled this through with enough saints to watch them die to know that there are awful battles fought by some of the greatest Saints in the final hours and we gotta help them fight and we gotta be ready to fight and this is the weapon. He bore our sin. He bore it. He carried it. And so what becomes of my dying? His death now is aligned with my death. What becomes of my dying? It's no longer punishment. It's no longer punitive. My guilt is gone. My condemnation is gone. The sentence of death over me is removed. And so the question comes, well why do I still die? Why don't I just go to heaven like Enoch? If my sin is gone, why do I have to die? And I believe the answer is this. This is not coming from this text. is coming from the wider revelation of God. But it's a question that presses on me here as I think about the glory of forgiveness and the real finished work of the removal and the putting away of all my sin, past, present, and future in the work of Jesus. I have to then ask, why do I die? And I believe the answer is God wills that in this fallen, accursed age, Sickness and accidents and carnage, explosions, hurricanes, volcanoes, earthquakes, and my death remain as a kind of cosmic testimony to the fact that sin is exceedingly sinful and horrible. But the inner dynamic of my dying, the way my dying relates to God, is totally transformed. Here's the words that broke forth like a hymn from the mouth of the Apostle. Oh, oh death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory over sin, over sting, over law through our Lord Jesus Christ. How? Because as He bore the sin, He removed it. And as He fulfilled the law, He took away its condemnation. And so everything that was coming against me to make my death punitive is over. It's gone. It was on the cross And so even though there will be pain, oh, I've seen so much pain, so much pain in the saints, even though there's pain that remains as a kind of witness to what happened to the creation when it fell under the judgment of God, witnessing to the horror of sin, I know, may God make it so that I still know that my guilt and my condemnation is over. And this is all an ushering into salvation, not condemnation. Take these last phrases briefly. For salvation without reference to sin. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. Two things to see. Number one, this is a powerful testimony to the finished work of Jesus. Do you see that little phrase, without reference to sin? Or maybe your version says something like, not to deal with sin. You know why he stuck that in there? So that we would not make the mistake, when we see the word salvation, of thinking that the salvation was not completely paid for in verse 26. At the cross. If you say, aha, aha, see, Jesus is coming to finish salvation at the end, so the cross is imperfect. He sees that thought in our heads. And he sticks in this phrase, he's not coming to deal with sin. Meaning, you can't deal with sin any better than he dealt with it. It is so completely covered, so completely paid for, so completely taken away, so completely born that you can't do any more with sin than he did on the cross. So what's he coming for? Salvation. This is the second thing to see now. The first was it's a witness to the finished work of Jesus, and now it's a powerful testimony to the application of what he bought at the cross. What did he buy? So many people who have a notion of salvation as a kind of static thing, boom, it happened once and now I can live any way I want, do anything I want, and it's just kind of home free. Salvation is a war that will go on until all sin is thrown into the lake of fire and all death and all unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire. And that salvation is a war that Jesus wins for us. And here at the second coming is one mega battle with you and judgment. That's what's at stake here. After death comes judgment. I think he's talking about the fire that is coming in the eyes of Almighty God at the second coming. And it's going to burn this world. And it's going to burn unbelievers. And all will be cast into the lake of fire. Unless they are somehow saved. And so repeatedly, like 1 Thessalonians 1:10 we wait for a savior from heaven or 2 Thessalonians 2:7 he is coming with his angels in flaming fire and you will receive rest with him and they will be consumed who did not believe the gospel you have got to have a savior at the second coming because it's going to be awful and that's what this verse promises so we got two promises When you put Jesus over against your death with His dying, He bears your sin perfectly, completely, so that when you face death, you don't have to worry about your sin anymore. And then, as you think about being conscious on the other side of death and moving toward that great day when judgment will be brought upon the earth and everyone will be judged in fire. I'm talking about any other kind of judgment right now. Just this massive destructive, consuming of the adversaries, like it says in 1030. Will you be saved? Will you be saved then? And the answer is, if you've got a Savior who comes for you, He is coming for salvation without reference to sin. Final closing application to your life right now. You should be asking at this point, how can I know that my sins are covered and that I will be safe at the judgment? That's the question right now, isn't it? I hope you're asking that question. I hope you don't take it lightly. How can I know that I won't be among the adversaries who get consumed but rather will be among those who are wrapped in the asbestos protection of Jesus in the midst of the conflagration of wrath. And the answer is, at the end of the verse, He is going to come for the salvation of those who eagerly wait for Him. How are you doing? How does it compare to marriage, say? Or retirement? Or a big bull market? Dream vacation? And the coming of Jesus? Let me put it in a more full biblical statement so that you can all respond now or know whether you're not going to respond. You can know that your sins are covered and that you're going to be safe at the judgment if you trust Christ in such a way that it makes you eager for Him to come. Let me say it again. You can know that your sins are covered and that you're going to be safe at the judgment if you trust Him in a way that makes you eager for Him to come. You see, there is a phony faith in the people of God that are going to be judged according to 1030. There's a phony faith. You know what the phony faith is? It's a fire insurance policy. It says, yikes, hell, I don't want to go there. What do I have to do? Believe Jesus. Okay, I do, I do. And then, as you live your life, The second coming is something you just as soon he put off as long as possible because I'd like to graduate from high school and then college. I'd like to get a good job and I'd like to get married and I'd like to have kids and I'd like to have a good long retirement and play a little golf and fish and have that dream vacation and play with my grandkids. You're not saved if that's the way you think. He is coming to save people who... Want Him! 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 So that when the robe of asbestos goes around you in the judgment, inside the robe, you look up and say, Wow! It's Jesus! That's all I want! So test yourself. Do you trust Jesus in a way that unites you to Jesus? Is Jesus your bridegroom that you're ready to jump up at midnight to open the door for? Or is He an intrusion with a fire insurance policy that you would just as soon postpone as long as possible because you love this world and everything in it. So my closing, plea is turn from sin and turn from the world and trust Christ, close with Christ in a way that makes Him a bridegroom, a friend, a soulmate, a treasure, a joy, a feast and a longing. Let's pray. Father, Father, As we go now, beget in us a faith in you and your Son that awakens in us a longing to see Him at His coming. So that day by day we eagerly await the arrival of King Jesus. And may our longed-for marriage, or child, or retirement, or dream vacation pale in comparison to that interruption. Lord God, make us new, I pray. In Jesus' name, and all the people said, Amen.